crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. My name's Matt Georges, and this month I'm talking to someone who is very much at a crossroads in their life. Her name's Jo Bahari, and several years ago she took the plunge, quit her office job, and set up the UK's first all-female home improvement and property maintenance company. From there, her career developed into freelance project management, writing her own book on DIY and television work, including presenting a DIY series called Make Do and Mend, and her current role on the British TV magazine show Steph's Packed Lunch. I'd originally intended to interview Jo to talk about her pivot from office life to setting up her own company, which seemed brave enough to me. But, and I think this might be my first and probably my last exclusive, as we talked, she revealed that she's decided to reduce some of her TV work so that she can try something completely different, being a therapist. I'm fairly sure my surprise comes across in the recording, but just to really emphasise this, and with huge apologies to all you therapists out there, I'm still having real trouble with the concept that someone would prioritise therapy over appearing on telly. But then, I'm not Joe, And as you'll hear, she makes a very convincing case for following your heart. There's two things that really stick in my mind from this interview. The first is Joe's determination to follow a path that is intrinsically motivated. If you haven't come across this term before, it means doing something for the sheer love of it for its own sake, because it brings you joy. It's the opposite of extrinsic motivation, when you do something because of an external force that is either punishing or rewarding you for doing it. A lot of economists think people only act on extrinsic motivation. Everyone else knows that's not true. But we do act on extrinsic motivation more often than we'd probably like to admit. Which brings me to the second thing that stuck in my mind, and it's Joe's fear that people would judge her for trying something different. I really recognise that feeling, and I'm sure many of you do too. I wonder how many people have been trapped by that fear into staying in jobs that they know they don't enjoy, that provide no intrinsic motivation, only the extrinsic rewards of money and perhaps some level of status, and the threat of those being taken away from them. So, it was quite a serendipitous time to interview Joe, and the serendipity didn't stop there. As it happens, Joe has just finished writing another book called Bye Bye Business which is a series of discussions with people who've built up and then sold their own businesses. This is what Joe did with her first business, and it's very much a mixed tale in terms of success and failure. Just the sort of nuanced story I like to hear about and learn from. So, keep an eye out for that in all the usual places, and, I'm sure you'd expect me to say this, try to avoid making Jeff Bezos even more disgustingly rich and powerful, and order your copy from a local bookstore, or through a website like Hive. Don't feel bad for Jeff. He can afford it if you share the love a little wider. Right, housekeeping. Only some very mild swearies in the verbal jungle this time round, and as ever, there's a little bit about mental health, including postnatal depression, so just a small warning if that's not what you want to hear about right now. 
Other than that, I think we're ready to go. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup. I'm Jo Bahari and I am pitched as a DIY expert, but I'm never quite sure how to describe myself. So you're a DIY expert. What does that mean you do in practice on on a day-to-day basis? Maybe even what did you do today? I don't know. So today I had a call with a client who wants me to project manage their refurb. They live in Hong Kong and they have a rental property in the UK and they want me to project manage the kind of refurbishment of that. Yesterday I wrote a script for an item on TV where I'm going to demonstrate how to hang wallpaper on a live TV segment. And tomorrow I'm doing some book editing. So my days are very varied and it's really hard to actually pinpoint what I do. And when I first started working for myself, I heard that the elevator pitch was like the most important thing. But because I have so many different facets to what I do, I find it really hard. It's going to be a really long elevator ride, maybe up to the top of the shard before I finish telling you what my job is. (laughs) Sounds really interesting. So you haven't always worked for yourself, have you? Where did you start off? Where did your career start? So I wasn't particularly great at school and I fell into doing A-levels of the subjects that I really shouldn't have been doing. I ended up doing chemistry, biology and business studies as A-levels and I was not science-based so I, I failed them all basically. And I ended up in a situation where everybody at that time went to university And I kind of stumbled into a clearing place in a university in London doing psychology and marketing. And I was like, okay, marketing's all right. At least I've got a university place. And so I just fell into this marketing job after that, marketing job after marketing job after marketing job, because I thought that's what you did. I thought that the only options available to me were to work in a kind of corporate environment doing whatever job I could because I wasn't particularly bright or clever in a certain area. So I guess my career started in corporate marketing roles. It makes you feel so defeated because the whole world is only focused at that time, is focused on those three letters. What did you get for your A-levels? You know, and if you didn't get three decent letters, A, B or C at A-level, you were kind of pushed to the side a little bit. That's interesting because so the school you went to, there was no route for people who weren't particularly interested in quite core academic studies. Is that right? It was... How did it work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the school I went to and the era in which I went to school, it was the kind of the 90s. And I do feel like there was a real sense of, especially where I went to school, if you aren't going to be a doctor, lawyer or an accountant, you're not worth us focusing on. So because I didn't fit any of those criteria and I didn't tick the boxes of what they felt like I was a successful student. They didn't really have any time for me, so they didn't present me with any other options. It's come up a few times in the interviews I do with people. The the kind of slightly, maybe it's different now, I hope it is, but the, the kind of slightly closed nature of the way the education system takes you through to your jobs. There's a definite sense of this is the path. This is the way. Have you been watching... Mandalorian. The Mandalorian, yeah. Yeah, this is the way. This is the way. It's like, well, maybe there's another way. But but when you're only 16, 17, 18, it's very hard to articulate that. And it's interesting that your A-levels gave you a very good clue there, which is that the business studies you did really well in. A B is, is a good grade. So you were good at it. But I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it. And then I kind of fell into a job that I didn't enjoy. And actually, I mean, I guess... The school environment didn't help, but also I'm of Indian heritage. My dad's Indian. 
So as a very kind of typical Indian father, he was like, if you're not going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, then what the heck are you? You know, who are you as a human being if you're not one of those things? So there was a pressure from from home as well as from school to kind of fit into this mould. And although I did well at business studies and I got a decent grade, had I been presented other options, I would have made completely different life choices. And I feel like it's really important for me to show my children that life isn't all about maths, English and science, that there's a whole world. And even if you are interested in science, it's not just about becoming a doctor or a surgeon. There are so many different facets to the world that they can go and be, they can actually be anything they want to be. And it's really important for me to give them that message because that was not the message that I had growing up. I got the message that I could be anything I wanted to be. But then when you were given the choice of what you wanted to be, it was quite a limited choice. It's like you could be, as you say, you could be a doctor or a lawyer. or You, know, like, <laughs> you could be oh, anything as long as it's a doctor anything, or a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> so you didn't particularly, by the sound of it, enjoy that side of school and, and the whole A-level side of things. And then you ended up in a job in, in marketing. So I don't even know what marketing is. I'm going to be really honest here. I always think marketing is advertising, but it's not. I've been told that much. So what, what, what sort of stuff were you doing? So, I mean, to be honest, I don't even really know what marketing is either. Um, but I did it for 10 years of my career, so I should. It is basically creating a voice for an organisation that they can then speak to the rest of the world. And that might be advertising. It might be these days social media. It might be creating kind of brochures or pamphlets about what that company does. It would be a company's website. And there's lots of different facets within marketing. And I started off in small companies. So it was very broad what I did. So I would be producing leaflets and pamphlets. I would be putting advertisements in newspapers. I would be doing advertising on radio and stuff like that. So it was quite a broad thing. And then I ended up in a much larger company, a very corporate company. And actually what's interesting about that is I thought I'd made it. I was like, one of the big guys, I've really made it. And I thought that that job could take me anywhere. I could go and work in Singapore or New York and it would be a job for life. But when I worked in that company, I was kind of much more focused in one particular area of marketing. So it was okay, but I thought that the company would give me a lot of opportunity. And actually, as somebody that didn't do very well at school, working for a company like that made me feel like I had a lot of success because often... Companies like that don't take people like me. So to actually go and work in a big company that's like one of the biggest financial service organisations in the world, I felt like it was a lot of kudos. There's a sense of, from what your dad was telling you and from what you've just said, that your job defined your worth to an extent? Or is that unfair? No, that is completely fair. And I think I am only really in the latter part of my life unpicking that and realising that my job doesn't define my worth. And actually, I've probably only come to that realisation since becoming a mother and realising that I don't want them to grow up feeling that they can only have self-worth because they've got these external factors telling them that they're worthwhile and telling them that they're successful. I want them to feel that whatever they do, they're proud of themselves because they love doing what they do, not because other people are telling them they should do this and they should do that. So I think that is a fair assessment, and I have only really realised that about myself in the latter years. Yeah. Well, I suppose the way the reason I say it is because it rings true for me as well, that when we had kids, there was a real 
break. I mean, obviously, there's a break in, in your life there. There's a before and after because it's such a kind of major change in your life. But I think one of the major changes for me was this shift in mental attitude, which was, as you say, that suddenly your life is not defined really by your job so much anymore. It's partly defined by you as a as a father or a mother. And I remember at the time feeling a little bit resentful of that because I was like, no, I'm on this and, you know, I'm doing really well in my career and I don't want to give that up. And then at the same time, realising that I was just getting sucked into something that wasn't good for me and that my kids were the kind of way out of that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think a lot of people don't ever get the opportunity to have that reflection and they just try and drive both things to the point of complete and utter breakdown and exhaustion because they're trying to do both things so unbelievably well and at the sacrifice of each other in a way and I definitely had a point in my life where I realized I've got to make a decision about which one of these two facets is the most important to get right because I can't do everything well it's breaking me to do them both well and obviously the kids couldn't be culled in that situation so I had to choose them (laughs) as the path but in doing so what I realized is that actually these things that had been so important to me what other people thought of me my status in terms of my work and my career the accolades that I was getting were actually not so important because even when I was getting those things and I was what was deemed to be on paper successful, I didn't feel it. So by letting that go, and as painful as that was, I really kind of redefined what success was for me. I always usually ask people at the end of the podcast what their definition of success is, but it feels like now might be an appropriate point to ask you because it sounds like you've considered it a lot by the sound of it. So how would you define success? I think it's a hugely potent question, that. And I think what I would have defined success as in 2010 and in 2000 are very different to what I would define success as now. And I thought as I was growing up that success was having a good job in a reputable company with a good level of income and a nice car and a nice house and nice clothes and, 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 and. But now I realise having looked at, and I don't want it to sound like my kids have defined me, but they've certainly reframed my view of myself which I think has been a very healthy kind of process. So what they have allowed me to do is go, what do I want them to feel like success is? And therefore I have to live that. So I have reframed success now as being happy with the person that I look in the mirror. So when I look in the mirror and I'm happy, that feels like success to me. And I can't say that I'm there yet, but I can say that I'm working on it. So it's not about, people looking at me from external and giving me the kind of validation to to deem myself as successful. It's about looking at myself internally and being okay with what I see. And that is success for me. That's really interesting. A few years ago, a guy came, you know, the sort of guys who come round who to sell bits and pieces and they're usually kind of slightly too open about the fact they've just come out of jail. And at the time I was like, no thanks, you know, we don't need anything, thank you very much. And this guy was quite aggressive and he kind of walked off and he looked back and he gave me a look of pure hate and he said, 
must be great having a perfect life. And then he, and he walked off. And I am very lucky. I've you know we've got a nice house and got a car on the drive and that kind of thing. And I almost said to him, "You've got no idea," because right then, me and my wife were going through really really tough times. I was still suffering with depression. There was all sorts going on under the surface that he couldn't see. And I, I kind of wanted to say to him almost, it might look that way, but it's really not. But I don't think that would particularly have helped the situation. But it was just kind of coming back to what you said, that, that there's a real difference between that external validation of being able to look at somebody's house or car or job or salary, if they tell you what their salary is. I suppose all those other things are indicators of their salary, aren't they? And then saying, oh, well, that is success. But then part of me is like, well, I mean, it is, isn't it? You know, you've, you've got a roof over your head, you're warm, you're dry, you're well-fed. These are all good things. You can go on holiday if you've got enough money. It's like, that's success too, right? I think it is. But I think actually we as society put so much pressure on that level of success that we don't necessarily allow ourselves to enjoy it when we reach it because we're always then reaching for the next step where you've got to have the bigger car and you've got to have the bigger house because you've always got to be more successful and I certainly see this especially as most of our lives are now played out on social media it is so easy to get trapped in the external validation of success and constantly saying to people I'm going to get a bigger house and I'm going to get this and we're going to go on nicer holidays and that is successful that shows the world how successful I am but you can still feel pretty miserable inside you can still feel you said it yourself you've got the nice car you've got a roof over your head you've got a lovely family but inside you were still going through a really really difficult time and I know so many people that we could probably point out that are on paper and on social media and according to the world extremely successful but inside they're pretty dead and I don't feel like that's success to me success means that your heart is happy and you've got something to live for every day and I don't feel personally that having the next best car or the next nicest holiday gives me that level of success and it is lovely to have those things but I'd much rather not have those things and wake up every day feeling good about who I am. Fair enough. So you weren't feeling good about who you were when you were in the the marketing side of your job so what happened there what did you what did you do? There's a part of me that had always known that I wanted to run my own company. I'd always wanted to be my own boss. And that probably is the Indian family influence because Indians are brilliant entrepreneurial people. Everybody in my family seems to run their own business in some way, shape or form. So it was kind of always a sense of inevitability that eventually I'd run my own business. And I knew when I worked in this big kind of corporate environment for the first couple of years, it was really exciting. I was part of something big and I felt like I could go places. But eventually this sense of repetition and mundanity came in where I felt like I was just on a treadmill and that treadmill wasn't really going anywhere that excited me. And so I decided to just press the red button, which was something that I'd never really done before. I'd always towed the line. I'd always done the thing that was expected of me. I'd always ticked the box that somebody else wanted me to tick because I was a good girl and I didn't shake things up a bit. I was, you know, towed the line. And by pressing the red button on my life, that felt exciting, but also extremely terrifying. 
basically what happened is I had an idea and I couldn't stop thinking about that idea. And the more I thought about it, the more I knew I needed to do it. And so I just one day, and actually, I guess with the support of my dad, who was so super proud of me for having worked in this big corporate entity. I mean, I could tell when he spoke to his friends, oh, my daughter, she's got a good job in the city and blah, blah, blah. But when I talked to him about this idea, he was really supportive. So I kind of had his backing to press the red button and go and and pursue this idea. So I guess I was still kind of hanging on to that external validation a little bit. But Mm. I decided to go and start my own business and jack in the corporate life. And it was great. Wow. What happened when you pressed the red button? Did you kind of descend through the floor and then get kicked out of the the bottom of your skyscraper? And <laughs> basically, what, what they did put it do? a big red cross on the door yeah. and they <laughs> took away my pass, and I'm never coming back. Security kicked me out. Yeah, it was a very very boring process. I am, oh. um, yeah, sorry to disappoint you. It was kind of a slow burn on the red button. I knew that I was going to get out. And I knew that I had to have certain things in place to get out. And the the one thing that I needed was a mortgage. And so I was quite lucky. I've been on the property ladder from quite a young age. I bought a property in Milton Keynes and that allowed me to kind of buy a property in London. So I was kind of leveling up. But I knew that if I had a mortgage that that was okay for me to pay every month, then all I needed to do was make that amount of money every month. So basically I saved some money, got a flat, saved some more money so that I had at least six months worth of not earning in order to then press the red button on my life. And then that's when I got out. So I kind of did it in a very comfortable way. So I wasn't going to be living hand to mouth. And it took, it probably took a year for that extraction process to happen. But then when it did, I guess all sorts of crazy stuff happened. So I started my business, which was a property maintenance company. And this was kind of before iPhones were out. So my first ad was in like the yellow pages And I remember like telling my friends I'm leaving and I'm going to go and start a business. And that was really exciting because they were all like, oh, it sounds amazing. It sounds great. But starting a business and running a business felt like a big step. And because when you're running a business, you then have to be successful. And we come back to that word again. How's the business going? Made any sales? And I was Trying to make that leap from actually starting the business to running a business was kind of a big bridge that I felt like I had to cross. Yeah. So I'm kind of the same stage now. So there's some really good practical advice there that you've given, which is around, okay, you need to, you can't do this straight away. You have to get some money together and you have to kind of budget and work out how long can you last and so on and so forth. So when you started your business, you talked about there's a difference between starting a business and running one. And that's kind of where I'm at now, which was it was all very exciting. And then you're kind of, it's like the first day at school, you know, I've sharpened my pencil and I'm sat at my desk and I'm like, so where's this work going to come from then? <laughs> so, and it's going okay, but it is hard work. So how, how was it for you? Oh, it was hard work. It was really hard work. <laughs> and there was definitely an emotional hurdle that I had to overcome. You know, once you start the business and you're running the business, there's a responsibility to actually create business and turnover and profit. And that's a huge sense of responsibility there. But I remember my first, so this was, pre-iPhones, so the world worked in a very, very different way, or pre-smartphones, the world worked in a very different way. And I took my first ad out in the yellow pages. So I kept saying to my dad, yeah, I'm going to start soon, I'm going to start soon. He was like, just pick a date. And that date is the date you're open. 
And in a way, I kind of expected that that day, it was the 8th of October. And I expected, I was like, right, open on the 8th of October. And then on the 8th of October, the phone didn't ring. And I was like, oh. And then the 9th of October didn't ring. And then kept not ringing. And I was just sat there literally twiddling my thumbs, watching neighbours at lunchtime, thinking, what the heck have I done? And then I think on like the 12th of October, the phone rang. And I kind of didn't know what to do because I was like, oh, what do I do now? I actually have to do something. But that first client was, it, it felt like I'd won the lottery. And that client became a long-term client of mine, which was amazing in itself. But when she phoned and she wanted me to do some work for her, I really had to hold myself back because I really wanted to be like, oh my God, you're my first client. Oh, this is so exciting. And instead I had to be really professional and just rein it in and go, oh yes, of course. Of course I can help you with that as if I'd been <laughs> in business for years. So yeah, I still remember that feeling uh, where I was and it felt like a kind of monumentous occasion and I wanted to open the champagne afterwards and really it was just a small client that but led to others and I think that's kind of the key point of the story there is that that first one always feels really special and you might start thinking where they're going to come from but they will come eventually what did James L Jones say if you build it they will come and it is yeah. true they are out there the clients are out there and you just have to take the opportunity for them to find you yeah, I know the feeling. I remember putting the phone down. Did I put the phone down or did I read the email for my first contract? And I was properly, I was jumping around the room. I was, you know, was kind of high-fiving myself and all sorts. I was like, this is so exciting. And yet the, the week before, I'd had a complete rejection. So it was a roller coaster. It was mm. proper lows to ecstatic eyes. And then that sense afterwards, oh, shit, I've got to do this now. I've got to I've got to do the thing that I've been kind of bigging myself up and kind of putting myself out there. I've actually got to do it. How does it feel for you? I find that interesting because as a corporate person, having been in a corporate background, the buck often doesn't stop with you. There's somebody else that's like contributing to this project or somebody else that you're working with in a team or if the proverbial hits the fan, it's not just always on you. And then all of a sudden you start to work for yourself. And even though I used to pretend that I had a, an accounts department, I, it was just me and I had to deliver the work. And it was so exciting getting the work and then all of a sudden you've got to deliver it. And you start to question everything. Why am I doing this? I'm not qualified to do this. I don't have the capability to deliver this project. What if they don't like it? What if it goes wrong? And then you start to kind of get what I refer to as like, like the freelancer overwhelm because that can be the thing that then really stops you from moving forward as somebody that runs their own business or is, you know, freelance because that that is scary. Actually having to do the work and deliver it is scary. So what was your business then? What were you doing? What did your first client ask you to do? So I went from being in a very large corporate organisation where I wore a suit and high heels every day to running my own property maintenance company, which had female tradespeople. So very, very different. And my first client needed a part of her boiler cupboard to be removed in order for the gas man to fix her boiler. All somebody needed to do was take a saw and cut out the MDF panel that was hiding in her boiler cupboards. 
really simple job. I did it myself. I had an umbrella of women that were working for me. So yeah, I kind of established this business that was very, very different from the corporate environment where me and a plasterer, a plumber and a carpenter went out and did things like hang curtains, decorate, lay flooring. And I started with four tradeswomen. And then very, very quickly, I had a team of nearly 40 tradeswomen that worked for me. We worked across all of the kind of southeast. And I had projected in my business plan, which I think are hilarious anyway, I wrote my business plan and I never looked at it again. <laughs> Unless you're getting investment from somebody else, I'm not sure a business plan really helps. I think being really in tune with your business and figuring out what the next step is often helps. But in my business plan, I had written that I would need to be VAT registered in the kind of fourth year of business. And actually, the business was so successful in that first year, I had to move out of my home office into an actual office and register for VAT. So it really took off, but at a rate that was hard to keep up with as an actual human being. And is that is that business still going now? No. So I, I ran that business for a long time, about 10 years. And I ran that business alongside another business I started, which was teaching people. So as part of the property maintenance company, Home Jane, I also started teaching people how to do their own DIY jobs because we were often being asked by clients to hang their curtains or put wallpaper up, but they wanted to know how to do it themselves. So I was like, okay, well, we can maybe teach people. So we started running DIY courses where we taught people how to do basic plumbing, basic decorating, and basic kind of odd jobs at home themselves. And then that became really successful that in it, it became its own business. So I was running two businesses, the property maintenance company, where we did refurbs for people, and a workshop business where we taught people how to do things themselves. Then I fell pregnant with my first child and running two businesses and having a small baby was very, very difficult. And to be honest, looking back, I probably suffered from quite severe postnatal depression, although I just didn't realise what it was at the time. And so somebody came to me with the opportunity to buy my business and I just took it. I took it mm. because I was exhausted and I was running around like a crazy person and I wasn't prioritizing the right things. So I sold my business to this person that was really interested in buying it and they were going to franchise it. And I was so excited that they would be able to take it to the next level. And it felt like a bit of a relief to be able to move away from it and to focus on home life for a while. Mm. But actually what they did was they ran it into the ground and they created really kind of toxic environment and they weren't servicing the clients in the right way and eventually they just kind of left it to rot a little bit and seeing that was quite heartbreaking because I then I had no power over it but I felt like it was the you know it was the thing that I'd really set up and I was mm. kind of handing it over to somebody in order for them to take it and make it flourish and actually it just died a death in quite a sad way so mm. that took a lot of healing to get over that oh Joe, I'm so sorry it's okay. Lessons were learnt from it. And actually, the biggest lesson for me was that in the latter part of running that business, I was doing it for everybody else. And it wasn't something that was actually making me happy. And so the biggest lesson I took from it was that I needed to do something that made me happy and worked for me rather than the 60 trades people that I was doing it for. So it was a mm. painful process. And it was a painful experience. But I learned an awful lot from it. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you could think, 
as an economist, this is what I, I would think, is that when you're paid for the business, that is the end of the transaction, right? That you've put a lot of work in, you've created this source of value, somebody has paid you what you both think is a fair amount for that value, and that is the end of the transaction. But there's still a very emotional element to that, which is that you see what you've created, something that you've worked very hard on. And so you're, you're still looking at that and watching that happen must have, yeah, must have been very hard. Yeah, it's a bit like, imagine if you'd, you've bought a house and you've done so many improvements to it and you've put all of your kind of love, effort, money, soul into doing this house up and making it beautiful. And then eventually you sell it and then you drive by a few years later and somebody's knocked it down. And you put so much effort into it, but you've got no right over that house anymore. It's no longer yours, but you put a lot of effort into making it beautiful and someone just bulldozed it. So it's kind of a mm. you know, similar analogy, you know. Yeah. That's how it felt yeah. a little bit. So, so what happened after that then? So after that, I did a lot of soul searching and I ended up doing... I'd had some opportunities while I was running that business to do some media work. So I had written a book, I'd been asked to write a book, and I had been asked to appear in a TV program to teach people how to do DIY in this TV program. And so basically, I actually took a lot of joy from those opportunities, much more than I was running the business. And I took those opportunities really in order to promote the business. But whilst I was Mm. doing them, I realized I found them so much more exciting and exhilarating and because they were kind of projects for just me rather than for the business as a whole even though the business was benefiting from them I found them really exciting to do and so I just took more of those opportunities on and I I did more freelance projects so I ended up doing more books and I did more tv work and I did more kind of freelance renovations where I, I was just working directly with a client and there wasn't kind of lots of other people involved. And really, I made a decision, actually, that was probably the biggest learning curve for me in that whole process, was that I would only do things that felt right. So I became a lot more kind of focused on my gut instinct. And I made some mistakes, but each of those mistakes made me go, okay, well, did you listen to your gut in that situation? And obviously, I often I hadn't. And so I hmm. ended up taking opportunities that felt like they were right intuitively and so now I'm a much happier freelancer I do a variety of different jobs I do jobs that feel right I'm terrified of not accepting contracts because every freelancer is when Mm. you have to say no to work it's terrifying but I know from experience that saying yes to work that doesn't feel good often means that the work isn't going to go well and so I've been become much braver at saying no And also I know that when I say no, often the right project then comes up quite soon after that. So listen to your gut instincts, people. It's often right. So that's interesting. The the intuition side of things. So I've just got really interested in the science of decision making. And there's, broadly speaking, two fields of thought on this. One is that it's essentially almost unknowable that when you talk about your gut, It's the opposite to your brain, right? So your brain is rational, and so you could work out what your brain is thinking, whereas your gut is kind of emotional. You can't work it out. And then there's this other side that's like, actually, intuition is basically experience. So if you were to look back, and if you were to really unpack what that intuition felt like, you'd be able to work it back to some kind of subconscious process saying, hmm, 
the, the the way that person sounded, the fact that they had an emphasis on X or Y, the fact that they came to me on with only a few minutes' notice, all these things bring up your intuition. So I'm just wondering what you think about that. Do you think there's an element of it that your intuition is actually your experience? Or is there something around the more emotional stuff you were talking about, your heart singing, something that isn't really reducible to just stuff you've learned? I think it's really interesting. I feel like as somebody that has made decisions when I've had a bad gut instinct about them and I've gone ahead anyway, and somebody that has then gone, I have a bad gut instinct about this and not done it, I can really see where it's worked and how it hasn't. Now, I think there is an element of experience and prior experience telling you whether or not something is right and something is wrong. But actually, I really believe in the other kind of field or school of thought, which is that your gut is your second brain and it can be more powerful than your actual brain because it isn't flooded with hormones and overthinking and all the other thing. And I think it can be clearer. And I have, I think, learned to tune into that and listen to it more and more with more experience that I've had. But I actually feel like there's something magical about that gut instinct. And maybe that makes you sound a bit spiritual and woo-woo, but it's never wrong, right? When you get that sinking feeling in your gut, that's the sign that you shouldn't be doing or going ahead with whatever it is that you're thinking about. And I feel like, yeah, as crazy as that makes me sound, I feel like there is something that's kind of a bit not scientific about the gut and how it works and how you get that feeling. I don't know. <laughs> Makes me sound a bit out there, doesn't it? But yeah, I'm in that school of thought, not the one that it's all about experience. Yeah. As in a lot of these sorts of debates, the answer is usually a bit of both, isn't it? The reason I wanted to get in touch with you is because your career isn't a very linear one. And that makes it interesting in and of itself. But also, it's it's not one where it's clear from the beginning where you would end up. And probably, I, I, my guess is that maybe you're not sure now where you're going to be in, say, 10 years' time. It's very interesting that you talk about that right now, because I have decided to do another pivot. Yeah, and I was thinking, my career is going well, whatever career it is. The thing that I do for money is going well. I've got regular work I've got lots of fun opportunities and I really enjoy doing them but I can't see myself doing this in 10 years time and I've just put a book together with lots of stories of people that have started their own business it hasn't gone according to plan and then they've decided to pivot and do something else and I think because I've already pivoted once I feel confident to do it again and so I have decided to do something completely different. And I have retrained to do some kind of talk therapy and I'm training to do some Reiki. So I'm moving into a completely different field and that is scary and I've only just started talking about it and now here I am talking about it on a podcast. Hot off the press, listeners. Hot off the press. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I've been trying to think about how to move away from what it is that I do for a long time and I've been interested in this, this other kind of work for a long time but I have been sat in a seat of fear because what would the world think of me? They know me as Joe Bahari, the property DIY expert person. 
but now I'm going to say to the world, but actually I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do this thing. And that switch makes me sound flaky and makes me sound like I'm not that sure of myself and that I don't take my job seriously. But actually, I keep telling my kids, you can be anything you want to be in life. So why don't I go and be what I want to be in life, which is something completely different to what I currently am. So making that transition again is scary, but because I've done it once, I know that it will eventually work out okay. Wow. Oh, I can't believe we're nearly at the end and you've dropped the bombshell. That's incredible. (laughs) So two immediate things jumped out at me. The first one, I was chatting to my wife and saying, oh, you know, I'd be interviewing Joe," And she was like, oh, she was on telly the other day. And I was like, really? And you are. You're on, like, big telly programmes. But you're going to give that up? I mean, that, I know. that sounds crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy, actually. I really enjoy the media work that I do. I do quite a lot of TV, you know, magazines, papers, stuff like that. And for years and years and years, I have wanted to get a regular telly slot because part of me felt that that would define my success and mm. that would validate why the, the work that I do. And I've got a regular telly slot and it's great and it's super, super fun. And it's something that I'm really confident in doing. But there's a pull. There's another part of me. It's like a heartstring that is is pulling in a different direction and always has been. And I feel like if I don't follow that now, I never will. And as I said earlier, I want my heart to sing every day. And success isn't about what other people see. It's about what I see in the mirror. And every time I look in the mirror, I see someone that's going, you're 70% fulfilled, but where's the other 30? And I feel like if I don't follow that path, then I will regret it in 10, 20 years time. So I have to do it because there'll always be a part of me wanting if I don't. You've done this before and it, it was scary, but now you're doing it again and it's... The stakes, if anything, are even higher. You know, you're losing so much. That's all I can think about. I don't think I'm a risk taker. All I'm thinking about is what you're losing. But actually, I think that's the point for me, is that for so much of my life, I lived my life pushing these things to the side because that's not what people do. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You should do this. So I'm going to go down the should route. I should do this. So I'm going to go down that route. Mm. And I spent so much of my life living my life in other people's eyes, it left a big hole, I guess. You know, living that kind of life where I was ticking everybody else's boxes left a hole because I wasn't really living the life that I wanted. And Mm. I would have made very, very different decisions, probably had a very, very different life if I had just gone with the feeling of this is what I want to do and that's the path that I want to go down. And so now I feel like, although the risk is huge, if I don't do it, you know, that feeling of being on your deathbed, which is probably taking us down to a slightly more morbid route than we need to go down right now. (laughs) But if I look at myself at that point in time, I want to know that I tried it all and I did it all, even if it wasn't going to work. And that's important for me. Very few people do it. And I think if I lived my life over again, knowing what I know now, I would do it my way and my way would be very different. But living a life where you haven't done it your way makes you feel very unsatisfied. And, you know, I mentioned before, it was a bit deep, but if what's the point? If it's going to be this unsatisfactory life, what is the point? So now I'm really determined that I'm going to do the things that I really want to do in life. In fact, so much so, I've even booked a drum lesson for next week because I've always wanted to try <laughs> drumming. 
<laughs> oh my God. Like, my husband was like, what's this drum lesson in the diary for? I don't want to be a drummer. I just want to give it a go. So I feel like I'm at the stage in my life now where I want to do all the things and stop letting external judgment stop me from doing the things that bring me joy because I want to live a fulfilled, satisfied life. Oh, wow. Drum lessons. <laughs> You're absolutely blowing my mind. Why talking therapies and, and Reiki? I've, I haven't really come across Reiki before very much. I've always been quite a spiritual person and spirituality is not something that is followed much in Western society. And when I say spiritual, I'm not a religious person. I'm just very connected to, I guess, the kind of energies and the way that the world works. But that was something that when I grew up, it was frowned upon and you're a bit of a hippie and a bit woo-woo and it probably still is. And my husband is still very much of that view that I'm a bit (laughs) of a hippie as I sit here in my tie-dye t-shirt. But if I had been allowed to pursue that part of me earlier on in my life, then I would have led a very different path. But now I realise that that part of me is important. It is therefore a kind of calling to pursue it and the way that I want to pursue it is to help other people I've been through a lot of therapy I've had various different bouts of depression I've had all sorts of different kind of mental health issues over the years which I've dealt with by talking by doing healing therapies and they've been hugely important to me and I feel like I'm at a point now where I want to be able to help other people in their journey because that's the thing that really makes my heart sing. Well, that's amazing. There's a real sense of giving back to the world something that, that helped you when you were at a dark time. It's a lovely expression of, yeah, something a lot bigger than you, maybe. It's yeah, nice. and actually it feels like that. And that's probably why it feels like I can't not do it. Because mm. it does feel bigger and it feels like it's my time. I've taken a lot of help from other people and it does feel like it's my time to put, put something back. I, I think that's amazing. One thing I meant, meant to ask you, what's the book going to be called? Because it sounds brilliant. The book is called Bye Bye Business. And it is about, it's a series of stories, really emotional stories from people that have set up their business, their baby, their passion, put all their blood and soul into it. And then all of a sudden they've gone, I don't want to do this anymore. And all of that stuff about looking flaky and feeling that kind of fear of saying to people, I'm not doing this anymore, how they've then spun and done something completely different and become much more satisfied and fulfilled in their lives for it. Amazing. Bye-bye business, is it? Bye-bye business, yeah. Okay. But when's it due out? Do you know? It is due out in March. Um, Where else can people find you? So if you wish, you can follow me at my Instagram, which is at DIY Joe Bahari. Lovely. Thank you. I'm sure people will. And any final DIY top tips for people? Get my book, the DIY (laughs) one. Fantastic. Oh, Joe, it's been such a pleasure. And thank you so much for spending your afternoon chatting with me. Thank you for having me. Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Joe for taking the time to talk to me and for being so inspiring. Thanks also, as ever, to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork and for the occasional bit of artistry to help me get some traction on LinkedIn. Thanks to Anna Gunn for editing, to Acast for hosting the podcast, and of course, to you for listening. Remember, if you think you could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, message me on LinkedIn, or tweet me using the handle at soupserendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.